I don't know if you picked up, but out of the uh, hundreds of kids that are at that retreat in New Hampshire, isn't it interesting that it's the North River kids that were the ones who were uh, diving into the icy water? Uh, that's a lot of fun. We haven't asked for a couple of weeks, but we've been raising this question for the last few months. Who's your one? When you think through the person that God has put on your heart to either pray for, share your faith with, to invite to church, to start some kind of a conversation about Jesus with, who's that one person? Fix that person's name in your mind. Let's stop and pray for them right now. God, we ask that if you've already uh, embedded a, a thought or a name into our minds, that you'd allow us to lift those names and those people to you right now. We realize that you do impossible things when we commit our ways to you in prayer. And we're going to see that again this morning. And so we ask that you would work in the lives of these friends and that you would lead each one either to return to the ways of following you or to discover Jesus for the first time. We ask that if you want to use each and every one of us in that process, you'd make us aware of the moment where you're opening the door for a conversation or for an invitation, or for an act of love showing that we care. And we ask that in the right time, in the right way, you will lead, lead each one to a, a confidence in knowing you and being secure in your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to read this morning from Mark chapter 6. If you haven't been with us for a while, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark since the first week in January. We're taking one chapter at a time and a, and a main section of each of those chapters, and we're using this as a run-up toward Easter. So it, it's like a, a long Lenten exercise where we're working through the entire Gospel of Mark chapter by chapter. I'm going to ask that you read with me this morning, uh, Mark 6, verses 30 to 44. Here's the gospel. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take almost a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. 
They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Lord, we're humbled when we look at the account of Jesus and when we look at the way that he operated in faith and in your power and we're amazed by the authority that he had. Here through a miracle of multiplication, Jesus takes a little and turns it into enough and turns it even further into an abundance. We long to see you work that way, Lord, and we're not sure why we don't sometimes. Perhaps it's our lack of faith. Perhaps it's that we ask for the wrong things. Perhaps it's that we see big challenges and we shrink back immediately. Whatever the obstacle, pray that you would increase our understanding of how you work and that we would lean on you more clearly, more boldly, and that you would strip away all of the things that get in the way of us holding on to you by faith. We pray for this church, and we thank you that for the past 30 years we have grown. We've seen uh, people who were very, very unclear about faith or even angry at church, who've come to love you and become part of this fellowship, who've discovered gifts for ministry and who've impacted others. We pray that there would be many more and that you would give us a boldness for sharing the gospel in our community and in our time and to not believe that the best days are behind us, but they are, but they are yet ahead. Thank you for each person here. You know where we individually need to have an increase in faith and to believe that you will work in our lives. And so we ask that you grant us wisdom, that you grant us courage, that you would grant us the kind of steadfastness to walk with you day by day and not to make this just a Sunday thing only. Thank you for walking through every chapter of life with us. So this morning we pray for Scott and Holly Omquist after Scully, uh, Holly's father died this week. And we pray for Ken Moody's family after Kenny died a couple of days ago. We ask that you'll surround them with grace, with compassion, with strength. And we pray for Maria who took a bad fall the other day and ended up in the hospital. And we ask that you would restore her to strength quickly. Lord, you know all of our needs. You know where our fears take hold. You know where uh, we're pleading with you continually to provide solutions in the right time, in the right way. I think of those within our congregation who are looking for work right now. And the, the process seems slow, and the prospects seem dim, but you're the one who can open doors. And so we ask that you will open the right doors at the right time, and that you will provide and even as we look at this miracle of provision today, we ask that you would surprise us in the way that you work. You know the people here who are contemplating new ventures or, or new undertakings, and we, we ask that you'd give them insight and wisdom, allow them to see the pitfalls, but also allow them to see the way forward.
We pray for the uh, young adults who are with a whole group of our teens this weekend on this retreat, and even as they wrap up their final session this morning and head home, we pray that there'd be an openness of heart and mind created through all the fun and the teaching and the laughter and everything else that goes on, and that we would see teens uh, make breakthrough steps in terms of identifying with you and following you and trusting their lives and their futures to you. Lord, we pray for those folks who are in our congregation who are carrying burdens that seem impossible. And we pray that you would make the impossible things a reality as you break through whatever the logjam is, that you would allow truth to come to bear, that we'd allow a light to break through, and that you would bring restoration of hope and new opportunities. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm guessing that most of you are familiar with the game Jeopardy, right? We're going to play Final Jeopardy this morning. The category is the Bible, and the question is, um, other than Jesus' resurrection, what is the one miracle of Jesus that is the only one recorded in all four Gospels? You have 30 seconds to come up with the answer. You ready? Yeah, you already guessed it. It's feeding the 5,000, and which is kind of an interesting thought. There are so many miracles that Jesus uh, performs and engages in throughout the Gospels, but there's only one recorded by all four Gospels other than the resurrection itself. Why is that? What is it? that he's trying to get us to see. Uh, my theory is when things are repeated a number of times in the Gospels, we're supposed to take note of that. But here's the one miracle, other than the resurrection, that's the only one recorded in all four Gospels. There has to be something about this that God wants you and me to see. That's what we're going to try and tackle here this morning. Now, Jesus performed many miracles. Not all of them are contained in the Gospels. John tells us that at the end of his Gospel. He says there are many more things that Jesus did, many more miraculous signs, but the ones that are given are there so that we might believe. So all of this is designed that you and I will have a robust, growing faith. This morning, we're in the sixth chapter of Mark's Gospel. This is part six of uh, a series that's going to lead us right through Easter Sunday. And I chose a title several weeks ago as I was looking at this uh, that I called Compassionate Catering. So imagine that you're in a scenario where all of a sudden you have drop-in guests that you weren't expecting and there's no food in the refrigerator. What do you do? This is even worse than that. Jesus and the disciples find themselves in a remote situation. In other words, they're not near a grocery store. They're not near a, a town that people can readily get to really fast. And there are 5,000 people who've been with him all day long, and he's been teaching them all day long, and they're hungry. Not only are they hungry, but at the outset of the story, it says that Jesus and the disciples were so busy with people coming and going from them that they didn't even have time to eat, and they went to this place to get away from the crowd and found there was an even bigger crowd. How do you cater a meal for 5,000 people with no preparation? That's the scenario that we're looking at here this morning. So I'd like to, I'd like to walk you through an exploration of this compassion of Jesus. Here's the first discovery we make. Even Jesus needed a ministry break every now and then. 
We find these words starting in verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. I have news for you. Not even Jesus' vacation plans always worked out the way that he hoped they would. This is one of those scenarios. The miraculous scene actually occurred as Jesus and his disciples were trying to get away for a much-needed break in ministry. There are three scenes in chapter 6 that lead up to this need for some R&R time by Jesus and the disciples. The first has to do with rejection at Jesus' hometown synagogue. Last week we talked about one of the synagogue leaders who broke with protocol in order to come to Jesus and throw himself at Jesus' feet and ask Jesus to act with power. Well, here's another one of those synagogues where the reaction was negative. And we find that on the Sabbath, in other words on Saturday, Jesus taught in the synagogue in his hometown and the people were amazed. But then a number of questions started coming from people and they were very cynical questions. Where did he get this kind of teaching? What is this wisdom that they were hearing from Jesus? What are these remarkable miracles that people are talking about all around the countryside? And then they start asking what comes across as kind of a snarky question. Isn't this Mary's son? Don't we know his brothers? Aren't his sisters here with us? Whenever they, they pose that question, isn't this Mary's son and Joseph is not included, what they're doing is they're making an insult and saying, hey, we know about the story. Isn't this the gal who got pregnant before she was married? And then there's this story that comes that she really bore the son of God. And so from the people who are cynical about all, the, all, about all that, they're throwing it back at Jesus and saying, we know who you really are and you're gonna pr uh, propose to teach us with some kind of authority. Jesus, we're told here by Mark, was surprised by their lack of faith and that their lack of faith was so great that he did very few miracles there. He only healed a few people. <laughs> I find this amazing. Here's a negative statement about the ministry of Jesus, a negative statement about their faith, a negative statement about, he, about what he does. And you and I would be absolutely awed. We would be posting this all over every social media avenue possible. Jesus healed a few people in our congregation. But the way it comes across in this case is there was so little faith he only healed a few people. Which makes me wonder, what would he have done if he'd gone into that synagogue and he'd been met with a crowd of people who had faith in Jesus as the Messiah? Oh my goodness, this would have been a different story. He ended up saying these words only in their own towns, among their relatives, and in their own homes are prophets without honor. And so Jesus recognized that he wasn't the first, that this had happened to some of the prophets before, and it was kind of par for the course, but where you're known very, very well, people tend not to think that much of you. Here's the second of these scenarios that led to this need for a ministry break. Jesus had sent out the 12, the disciples in other words, the original disciples, on their first solo gospel mission. In doing this, Jesus gave them authority to do ministry in his name, to pronounce the good news of the kingdom, and in some cases to heal people and even more. 
This becomes a rare glimpse into the training ministry of Jesus. Sometimes we are tempted to think that Jesus did all the teaching, that Jesus did all the ministry, but here's one of those snapshots that show us that he was enfolding his disciples into that ministry early on. It wasn't just a plan that got birthed when, when Jesus ascended back to the Father and they thought, oh boy, we've got to create this new thing called the church. No, it was already happening through the disciples. And he trained them and he used them and he gave them authority to go out and to do ministry. And so they went two by two, traveling from town to town. They were sent out, taking no provisions with them except for a walking staff. Jesus told them that if they were welcomed into any home, then stay in that home until they were done ministering in that town. If they were not welcomed anywhere, then to shake the dust off their feet and move on to the next place. Now, what was that all about? Partially, it was about shaking off the insults and letting it go. Uh, partly, it was, it was considered something of an insult to do that, as if to say, I don't even want to carry your dust with me to the next town. But he didn't want them to dwell on the losses, but instead to focus on where the positive things were happening. And they preached the gospel of repentance, and they healed many people in Jesus' name and with his authority. Sometimes we lose sight of what the disciples really did along the way as they were being trained. And we think that all this happens later after the Holy Spirit comes with power. But even early in the ministry of Jesus, early in their training years, the disciples were doing great things in his name. Which leads me to this hope and to this thought that there are still great things that God expects to get done through his people today in the name of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. He's not done working with you and me in our day. So the, the first of these uh, scenes that were creating this need for a ministry break was rejection at Nazareth. The second was that the disciples had been sent out on this teaching ministry two by two. And the third had to do with grieving the death of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. It's here in chapter six that we learn that John had called out King Herod for stealing his brother's wife and then marrying his brother's wife. This was considered a huge scandal among the Jewish people that, that their king, King Herod, who was half Jewish and half Idumean, meaning from Edom, had done this. And John the Baptist, who was calling out the sins of the people and calling them to repent and to be baptized in preparation for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus, didn't spare his thoughts when it came to the rich and powerful too. And so he called out King Herod's very obvious scandal. The result of that was Herod wanted to kill John. And yet he was caught in the midst of that because he feared the displeasure of the people. And the common people all around Israel had heard John teaching the way that he taught with authority, not like all of the leaders in the synagogues. And they were beginning to say that John was a prophet. And so Herod, on the one hand, wanted to kill him. On the other hand, he protected John because he didn't want the backlash. But then an event happened on Herod's birthday. Herod threw a very lavish party with a lot of guests at the birthday, and the daughter of his new wife, Herodias, did a, an amazing dance. I don't know what kind of dance it was. I don't think it was the waltz. But at the end of the dance, they were so moved by the dance that Herod said to this stepdaughter of his, ask me for anything you want in the kingdom, up to half the kingdom, I will give it to you. And she thought, wow, 
And she ran to her mom, who'd been harboring this hatred toward John the Baptist for calling out the affair and, and, and Herod's um, duplicity in all of this. And she said, there's one thing that I want. And she sent her daughter back into that gathering where now it was all public. Herod had made this promise. And she said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Whenever you hear that idiom, Somebody wants your head on a platter. This is where it comes from. It's borrowing uh, directly from the Gospel of John. And Herod, knowing that he'd made this public promise, had to come through on that, and John's life was lost. And so Jesus and the disciples were grieving the loss of John the Baptist. He knew it was coming. Nonetheless, John was his cousin or second cousin. He was a family member. John had been faithful in his service. And it meant the end of one era of proclaiming the gospel and that Jesus was now on the march toward his own death because he knew what was coming, that the cross awaited him. And there was some grieving that had to go on. Needless to say, all of this created a very stressful period for Jesus and the twelve. After experiencing rejection, the disciples' first solo ministry tour, and they wanted to come back and tell Jesus everything that happened and all that they had taught, now they're dealing with this grief on top of all of that. So Jesus invited the disciples to come with him for a quiet getaway. And they were headed to a remote spot. They literally get in a boat, and they're going to get away from the crowd, and they're going to go somewhere farther away, far away from the populated areas. Whether you know it or not, this is the foundation for participating in ministry retreats. Every so often, our church staff will take a half a day or a day and we'll do a spiritual retreat. Sometimes we do it here and we just turn all the phones off and we spend extra time praying and we think about something that takes us deeper. Once in a while, we've, we've had somebody say, hey, I'll make my cabin available to you or I've got a summer home somewhere and we've been able to do that sometimes with our overseers or sometimes with our staff. And it's a very powerful time where you kind of get away from all of the normal uh, routines in order to learn something new or to have an experience with God that takes us deeper. A handful of North River ministry teams have taken a weekend to get away. Uh, it provides a break from the normal stress of the day or the week. It allows new friendships to build and to bond. When we're in these situations, we listen differently. We learn differently because we get away from the patterns, and God can speak into those moments. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that our teens are away this weekend. There are powerful things that happen on these weekend retreats. Yeah, it's fun, and it's games, but it's not all fun and games. And there are some powerful moments of worship and teaching that break through. Some of these kids build some really deep friendships with people they didn't know before, and it allows the adult leaders who go with them to begin to invest deeply in their lives. So let's do this. Let's pray directly for them for a minute in the final stage of this retreat before they get home this afternoon. God, in the same way that we're recognizing that even Jesus needed to get away for some kind of a ministry break, we ask that you will powerfully use these last few hours of this weekend's retreat in regards to our teens. We ask that you will bless Christy and Rich and the entire team that's with them we ask that you give these uh, junior high and high school students ears to hear what you are saying to them and bring them home safely this afternoon, changed in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the second exploration of compassion. We discover that rest was interrupted by Jesus' compassion for the crowd. 
Verse 32 takes us into this part of the story. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Vacation, so they thought. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Picture this scene in your minds. Jesus and the disciples get into a boat. They head for a quiet place. There's this sense of relief that begins to hit, thinking, oh, we're going to get away from the crowds. This is going to be good. A weekend away together. But the popularity of Jesus and the 12 was so high, so great at that time, that people on the land recognize their boat sneaking off into the harbor, and they start running along the shore trying to figure out where the next harbor is where they can land. And they get out ahead of the boat. Now, they don't have motors on the boat. The boat's dependent upon wind power. It's a slow process. If you ever go sailing with a friend, you are at the mercy of the wind. And your schedule doesn't necessarily fit whatever you decided was going to be on your watch. And so it may have been that the people on the ground actually had a time advantage than Jesus and the disciples. And they figured out where they were headed. Why would they do that? They were desperate to hear the words of Jesus. They, they'd heard all the other preachers of that time. They'd heard all the other hopes. But Jesus was the one that was beginning to change lives and change perspectives. And when Jesus saw them, Mark says, he was filled with compassion. So compassion for the crowd supplanted this need for a quiet retreat. Here we see the character of Jesus' compassion for the crowd. He describes them as sheep without a shepherd. I have a question for you. What are sheep without a shepherd? The next meal for the wolves. That's why he has compassion. He realizes if they don't have a shepherd, if somebody's not directing them, if they're not falling in a clear way, then they're aimless. They're directionless. They're in trouble. They're open for whoever will come and lead them in the wrong way. What a contrast between these people and the folks in Jesus' hometown that happens in the same chapter of this gospel. Just a short time ago, the people of Nazareth raise their doubts about Jesus and they start lifting snarky questions. Isn't this the same Jesus who grew up in our hometown? Isn't he the carpenter? Don't we know his brothers and sisters? Who does he think he is doing all this stuff? And yet here, there are crowds of people on the other side of the lake who haven't known Jesus, have just heard about him, and they're running after Jesus and the Twelve saying, nothing else in life matters more right now than getting at the footsteps of Jesus and hearing what he has to say because these are words of truth. These are words of life. These are words of hope. And I have news for you even in our day. People are desperate to hear words that lead to life and truth and hope. And their excitement about Jesus made it nearly impossible for them to get away for a quiet weekend. There's a great lesson here. Jesus shows compassion when you draw near to him. 
We saw last week that there's no such thing as bothering Jesus. That was the comment of the cynics, and we took that as our title for the message last week. But one of the takeaways was you can't bother Jesus because you matter to him so much no matter who you are, where you are, where you've been, what you've done, what labels we put on each other. When you draw near to him, he draws near to you. And here we see an example of that with this crowd. He'd already told the disciples, let's get away. Let's have, let's have a, a weekend away. Let's go on the youth retreat with Christy. This will be a ball. We can all jump in the cold lake together. But the crowd is there with their questions and their needs. And he sees it. And he says, let's put aside the weekend. We'll go another time. There's more to be done. I don't know about you, but I love that about Jesus. I love the fact that he recognizes the need for a break and the need to get away. We need that in our lives. But he also senses what's urgent and what's important. And people's lives were on the line. And people are more important to Jesus than vacation. That's a cool thought. Wed that to what we learned last week, that you can't bother Jesus. Even when Jesus is going to take a vacation... You still matter to him. Here's the third observation. His compassion led to this miracle of multiplication. What happens here is multiplication. It's not creation from nothing. He takes a meal and he expands it. Verse 35 picks this up. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away. (laughs) This is an amazing conversation here. This is a remote place. It's already very late. Here's our solution, Jesus. Send all the people that you have compassion for. Send them away so that they can somehow find their way to some remote village farther away and they can beg for food. It's not the words he used, but it's the sentiment. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. Uh Uh-oh. They said to him, that would take almost a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and, and give it to them to eat? So Jesus changed tactics here. How many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. So, let's put this together. The day had started with the realization that Jesus and the twelve didn't even have a chance to eat. It says that in in Mark 6, 31. Now the disciples recognize that the crowd needs to find food as well. And they're in a very remote area. So the disciples suggest they send the crowd out to fend for themselves. And Jesus does something very different here. He turns the question back on the disciples and said, wait a minute, I've just sent you guys out to minister in my name. You've been going two by two in all these different towns. You've been speaking in authority. In some places, you've been healing people. And now you're just saying, let's send these people out on their own. You give them something to eat, he says. So, they go through a back-of-the-envelope estimate. One of them comes up with this figure and says, that would take almost a year's wages for us to do this. And so Jesus doesn't really respond to that. He just says, what do you have to work with? Go and find out. 
And so they go on a search to figure out what kind of food do they have to operate. We already know they didn't have any food. They were hungry. They never ate that morning. And John's gospel tells us that they come back with a boy's lunch. Mark tells us about five loaves and two fish. But John tells it that it actually came from a young boy. In other words, they must have asked a bunch of people, and the only person willing to give up their food into the mix of what Jesus was going to work from is a boy. Now, don't think five Italian loaves or five long French bread loaves. These are five small rolls and probably two small minnows or... uh, two sardines. That would be a boy's lunch. And Jesus says, that's enough. We can work with that. Sometimes Jesus will create a need in our lives to bring us to the point where we ask him to do something dramatic because there's nowhere else to turn. And when we find ourselves in those moments, Little things become great in the hands of Jesus. And impossible things get done when we put our faith in Jesus. I think back in the early years of planting North River in 1989, there were 10 of us, Sue and and me, and eight of our friends who launched out together. We had six weeks of planting. We met two nights a week for six weeks. And we talked about starting a church with a heart for the unchurched. We had no money, we had no place to live, we had nobody backing us. Realizing that, I got a job painting houses, and we threw a number into a hat saying, this is what each of those families were willing to commit each month to that process, not knowing if anybody else was going to come with us or not. That became our budget for the first six months. We, the only ones that we thought we could depend on right then were, were the ten of us. And we asked God to create a church where we could feel safe inviting our friends, a place where we could describe the gospel one theme at a time and let people react to that without beating people over the heads with it, and where we could try and be as creative as we possibly knew how in order to illustrate what the teaching of Jesus was for our day and for our time. When I look back on 30 years ago, it's amazing that we were that dumb (laughs) to start on a Labor Day weekend with no budget and no backing, and it's humbling to look at what God did with just a handful of people in a dream, and then every week it seemed there were more people who kept buying into that dream. And then we launched out again in 2002 to build this building and to acquire this land, and it was an amazing process. Do you know that every time that we set out to either uh, take on more space when we were renting across the other side of the highway, or when we came to the point of buying land, or when we came to the point of building, there were some people who were part of the group, wonderful people, who said, I'm out. I think this is a bridge too far. I, I can't give an extra dime to make this happen, and I think that all of you people are nuts. But the majority of the group just said, we think this is where God is leading us. Let's just go forward. Friends, there are so many occasions where God works through very humble beginnings and very small, meager sources in order to do something great. Very, very rarely does God give us everything that we need way up front 
and then say to us, okay, you've got all the resources, just go after it. And I think there's a reason for that. What he wants us to do is to come to those places where we depend on him and when we have to get stretched and when we have to reach out in faith and when we have to put our, our lives and our integrity and our effort on the line. And it's amazing what happens when we're in those moments. Let me walk you through three more observations of what happens when Jesus meets a ministry need in our midst. When he does it, the first thing that he, he do, tells us to do is to take responsibility. So notice what he says in verse 37. But he answered, you give them something to eat. He didn't say, great guys, pray to me and I'll do it here. He says, you give them something to eat. And Jesus was going to include them in this process. The 12 initially thought Jesus would send the people out to the highways and byways, but Jesus wanted them to take responsibility for the crowd's needs. You get the sense that Jesus was hoping that they would say, oh yeah, right, you told us that well, whatever we ask in your name, you will supply if we're asking according to your desires and, and to your ministry initiatives, you're going to supply that need. I think Jesus was inviting them to do something great. Very often we stop when the need seems overwhelming, and I think they were at that point too. The second thing that happens is that Jesus tells us to take stock of your resources. So verse 38 says, uh, Jesus asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five loaves, two fish. So here's the second thing Jesus expected them to figure out. And it had to do with what they had to work with, what kind of resources were available. And John supplies that note that Andrew brings back this boy and says, well, we've got five loaves and two fishes. Imagine that kid at the end of the day. We don't know exactly how this miracle happens. When, when Jesus prays over all of that and then he begins to tear it up and distribute it. Now, I don't know if, he, if the five loaves and the two fish immediately became basketfuls right at the moment and Jesus do, is doing that, or as they spread out with what they had, if it just kept expanding and kept spreading. But we do know that there were 5,000 men, which meant that there were women and children that weren't count, counted in that number, and all of them had enough to eat. And the disciples bring back 12 basketfuls of the excess at the end of this. So there's an amazing miracle of multiplication that goes on here from one boy's lunch. And imagine that boy's eyes at the end of that story as he sees all of this unfold and as Jesus looks over at him and just goes, you, buddy, you're the one who put your lunch on the line. Third, when Jesus wants to meet a ministry need, give him what you have. John's gospel tells another part of this. He says, another of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a, here's a boy with, with five small barley loaves. That's how specific he gets. And two small fish. But how will they go among so many? And verse 11 says, and Jesus took the loaves. There's something really beautiful about this. The boy gives up his lunch. Jesus decides, I'll work with that. We can start here. Here at North River, in the past, we've participated in four stewardship campaigns. The first three were focused on uh, beginning to have some resources to start the process, then acquiring land, and then building this building. 
And at each stage of that, all that seemed rather impossible. But it's amazing the heart of the people as people got stretched and got involved in all of this. The fourth of those campaigns was our Vision 2020 campaign that launched in 2017 that's designed to wrap up uh, the end of May, beginning of June this year. The principle whenever we do this that is at work is this, not equal giving but equal sacrifice. So I love talking about this because we're not raising money right now. That's not the point. We're not asking you to do something extra but to learn the principles because it's the principles that light us on fire. In the process, the leaders are always asked to give first. All were asked to give something. All were asked to pray and to step out in faith. Those who were more financially able are asked to give more because God has blessed them that way. Those who are less financially able are still asked to give something and to stretch as far as they can. And it's always amazing how these processes work. It's the way of Christian stewardship. We acknowledge that everything that we have comes from the Lord's hand. We recognize that he calls us to take responsibility just in the same way that he did with the disciples. We take stock and then we give him what we have. And we watch Jesus do something amazing with all of that. And then there's one final step in that process. It's to pray over the process. Soak the process with prayer. So verse 41 in Mark 6 says, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, Jesus gave thanks and he broke the loaves. The boy gives up his lunch. Jesus decides that's enough for what he needed to do. He prays over it and the power of God gets distributed. Here's the big idea for this morning. Jesus still works miracles through a combination of compassion, leadership, and prayer. And it takes all three. Compassion, leadership, and prayer. We see the compassion coming from Jesus' heart when he says, guys, we're going to feed this crowd. Figure out how you're going to do it. We see leadership as the disciples begin to say, well, maybe if we come up with a year's salary, we can pay for all this. But somebody else tries to scrounge for food, and I give Andrew credit, he came up with a boy who was willing to give up his lunch. And the greatest leader in the bunch was the boy. Because God did great things through a boy that day. And then prayer. And when we submit ourselves to the way that God works, God can do amazing, amazing things. In Jesus' hands, little things become great. In Jesus' hands, impossible things are accomplished. What I hope I'll do this morning is point these principles out to you so that your faith and my faith will be stretched and that we will never stop expecting Jesus to move greatly in our midst. The way of stewardship is not just a matter for great campaigns. It's the way that we should live our lives, continually submitting what we have to Jesus, continually being surprised in the way that he uses us and stretches us and accomplishes great things. We've got a lot more than 10 people here now, and I'm excited about what God has next because it includes you and me and Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have here to walk through Mark's gospel and just to observe the way that Jesus did ministry. Help us to apply these same principles to the way that we live. Increase our faith 
not as blind faith, but faith that is clearly rooted in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Thank you for being the miracle worker, the way maker, the promise keeper, the light in the darkness, and our God. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for sending Jesus, and we reach out to you again in his name. Bless the offerings that we give, whether today or through the week, whether electronically or here physically. Bless us as we try to accomplish your work here in this neighborhood. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Let me call on our ushers. We'll receive our offering, and we've got one final song this morning. We're asking God to forever reign in our lives.